0: Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Welcome back to all the listeners and Kamara Toiv. We've had our break for Rosh and Yom Kippur, and we are back with a fantastic new series on the Rambam. We, first of all, again, apologies. We have actually had a couple of emails from people who bought the Ami magazine specially for the Geniza article, but rest assured, it is in the Sukhs edition, which should be available at your local bookstore or grocery tomorrow so make sure you buy it it's a beautiful article and it's a three-part series and we are not on any commission from the me magazine it's just a great read
1: right actually it won't be tomorrow because by the time this goes out right it will already be hopefully in the newsstands make
0: sure you grab that while you can but i'm sure we'll upload a version eventually on our website for the unlucky few who didn't manage to buy it in print So, the Rambam, Rabbi Hesh, where do we begin?
1: So, no Jewish figure is more famous in our history than the Rambam.
0: Well, that's quite a big statement.
1: Well, with regards to general audiences, but even religious from audiences, excepting perhaps Rashi. And if we were to put it in one sentence Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, the son of Maimon, hence Maimonides, or. Abu Imram Musa ibn Maimun in Arabic, was born in Cordova or Cordoba in Spain in the 1130s and died in Cairo in 1204, having also lived in Morocco. And he authored three great works. Why
0: does he hold such a massive place in our history?
1: Well, his achievements are enormous. They are also multifaceted in the world of Torah. He is known as the great arbiter of Halacha, the author of the Mishnah Torah that codifies all of Jewish law. In academic circles, he is known as the great philosopher who wrote Guide to the Perplexed, the Murnavuchim. Historians relate to him as the influential communal leader who served as the Nagid, as it was known, leader of Egypt's Jewish community. And to the world at large, he is recognized as one of the most famous physicians in history. And all his pieces have been translated into English. And therefore, there are thousands of yeshivas and high schools and dozens of hospitals around the world named after him, which you don't find with any other person as such. Secondly, we have a lot of data about his life, primarily drawn from his own books and letters, but also his friends and opponents, both of whom we shall meet, write about him. Yet, interestingly, there are things accepted as fact about him, which are either untrue or unverifiable. And equally, there are areas which are reliably recorded, but people don't know about them. For instance, his diet, his relationship with others, his family. And Put this all together with the fact that he wasn't some academic, you know, writing works in an ivory tower, or even Talmud Chacham living in isolation writing Svarim. He was incredibly involved in the Egyptian killer and wider afield. He literally endangered his life for Jews on a number of occasions, and these things are part of his life story. And he was the greatest in his generation in terms of Torah. The Chazanish in Bahirus writes that the writings of the Rambam are beyond the natural capabilities of a human being, and he was clearly given a gift from God. And the Chazanish adds this is what occurs to those who learn Torah Lishma for its sake. And we know that more than a thousand Svarim have been written on his works. So what we're going to try and do is fill in some blanks, remove misconceptions, and hopefully round out his biography and start with the fact that he was born in Cordoba, which was then the capital of Andalusia in Muslim Spain and was the largest and most affluent city in Europe. The Muslims had conquered Cordoba in the eighth century, but Jews had been there prior to that, probably from Roman times. And his family lived in the southwest part of the city, which was the Jewish quarter, and the Great Mosque and the Royal Palace were very nearby. They were the symbols of Islamic authority. And the court itself was, it was small, it was crowded, it had narrow streets.
0: Was his ancestry from that city as well?
1: Probably, I couldn't tell you how far back it goes, although we know their names, because at one point he signs himself Moshe, the son of Maimon, who was a Dayan, the son of Yosef, who was a Chacham, the son of Yitzchak, who was a Dayan, and he goes further back, and his father actually was his first, perhaps his only, teacher.
0: Oh, so you had proper rabbinic lineage. Yes, very much back. so. And what about siblings?
1: Well, people generally know about his younger brother, david and this brother writes to the rumbum at a later stage sending good wishes to his sisters in the plural so he had at least two sisters but possibly three we never meet his mother and it is said that she died in childbirth
0: wow. now we kind of know what he looks like just there's obviously the famous statue of him mm. in cordoba and on israeli stamps Is that what he looked like? (laughs) You're going to say no, aren't you?
1: (laughs) Well, let's, let's broaden the question first. It's not just Israeli stamps. You would not believe how many countries have that figure of him in the turban. And the answer is, who knows? The earliest representation is an 18th century book dealing with antiquities. And it's got a medallion. And it claims that this is a portrait of him. But there's no written description of his appearance that has come to light. It's conjecture, maybe? You know.
0: Not like the Vilna Gons picture discovered in yeah, an that attic.
1: at least has a uh, provenance in some measure. Now, the most obvious place to start is his date of birth, except we run into two alternatives. The date you find in most general biographies is 1135, in fact, Erev Pesach of 1135. And you'll find that engraved on his tombstone in Tveria. And the source for this is the copy of a report which very likely originates with his grandson, Rabbeinu Tovid, but is preserved in a note that contradicts itself by giving the year as both 1133 and 1135. So it undermines its own impact, whereas most academic works give the date as 1138. Now, I will admit that for the past 20 years, I taught it as 11.35, but based on what I've read up simply for this podcast, I'm leaning more towards the second date. It's to be found at the end of his commentary on the Mishnah, where he writes, I began the composition of this Perush when I was 23 years old. I completed it in Fustat when I was 30 in the year, well, 1479 of the Seleucid chronology, which is 1168, and therefore 1138. And it is a more reliable document.
0: And its date of death is also disputed? No. 1204 Teves, we know that. Right. So he spent his early life, as you said, in Muslim Spain.
1: Until 1148, which is when there was an Almohad invasion and everything changes. The uh, The Almohads were Muslim and their movement originates in Morocco in the teachings of a messianic figure, the Mahdi, who wanted to restore the pure faith of Islam and enforce the rules of law. And they united, basically, North Africa and Spain under the rule of a single empire and gave the Jews three choices, exile, conversion or death, which is one more than the Christians ever gave during the Crusades because there was no option of exile. But what it means is that suddenly Jews whose families have been living in Spain for hundreds of years have to make extreme choices. So many Jews feigned being Muslim to to escape death or exile, and they became crypto-Jews, Anusim, which obviously predates the the Muranos in in Christian Spain by a few hundred years. And the Rumbum, or his father really, takes the family out of Cordoba, which was a decision that leads to them wandering in Spain for the next decade, well, 10, 11 years. And you're talking at a time where there's no protection, there's no police, there's no shelter from animals, there's no obvious destination to go to. And in fact, we don't have information about where they lived. There is evidence that for some time they were in Seville, where the Rambam met with uh, Muslim astronomers, and possibly that they ventured into the north of Spain, which was controlled by... Christians, because at one stage, the Rambam refers to the north of Spain as something with which he is familiar. In the Murn he says, you know, you see at present in the country of the Franks. So maybe he was there. But by 1159, 1160, they left Spain for good and they moved to Morocco. And by then, he'd begun his scientific studies. And I quote, the first thing I studied was the science called astrology. Namely, the science by which a man knows what will occur in the world or what will occur to a certain individual during his entire life. I have also studied the entire subject of idolatry. There does not remain a composition on this topic that I have not read. And the reason for that was because both in halacha and in terms of mindset, he wanted to understand the parameters of idolatry of Abedah Zorah. Why was that an early topic of his? Well, in those days you're you're surrounded by it and it's important to, to clarify. Right. But in typical biographies of the Rumbum, we read that he wrote a book on logic when he was 16. Now, we don't know exactly how old he was. It doesn't say, but having said that, late teens is a pretty good estimate. And remember, Anything that he writes before he's 21, he is writing as a refugee on the move. You know, put that into place when we look at these writings. And logic was one of the first subjects that any scientist learned. It was considered central even for the study of medicine. And another of his first sforim was on the calendar it was really a country written in 1158, calculating or intercalculating that the seasons and the years and his command of astronomy and mathematics is highly impressive.
0: So he wrote all of this before even arriving in Morocco.
1: Yes, his arrival, to be more precise, into Fez, although... Many wonder why the family chose to move from Andalusia to Fez, given that it was the same Almohad dynasty in power there. In fact, Fez was a, a base for their war campaigns in, in Spain, although the, the capital was Marrakesh. And once again, if you look at most biographies, they'll tell you that the Rambam moved there because he wanted to learn under Revuda ibn Shoshan. But that's you know the, the sources are quite vague. And anyway, by this time, he's in his early 20s. He didn't need a teacher. And even if he did need a teacher, the entire family wouldn't have moved to a dangerous place just for him to learn. Um, although, ironically, it could be that Fez was potentially an easier place to live as a crypto Jew, because we find that when Rav Yosef Ben Yudha ibn Aknin, emigrated from Barcelona to Fez, he assumed he wouldn't be recognized as a Jew. It was a town almost predestined for a life in hiding. Uh, There were narrow alleyways, towering walls, and there was a Berber custom there to wear thick veils on people's faces, including men. About four years after he arrived in Fez, he writes his famous Igeres Hashmud, what Jews should do now that they are facing forced conversion to Islam in Morocco. And he wrote the letter in reaction to a widely circulated uh, responsum by a rabbinic scholar who'd instructed the Jews to lay down their lives, to die, rather than submit to Islam. And according to this halakhic opinion, you would expect mass uh, martyrdom, as had occurred in, in, you know, in the Crusades in, in the Rhineland. But the Rambam strongly disagreed. Firstly, he proved that Islam was a monotheistic face, faith, unlike Christianity. Um, and he doesn't rely on halacha alone. He brings sources from to the Gomorrah. You know, this letter, it, it's 5,000, more than 5,000 words. It's pages long. And therefore, he advocates a three-part approach The first is temporarily accept Islam and avoid being killed. Secondly, while in this phase, keep whatever mitzvahs a person can. And thirdly, leave the place to one where you could live openly as a Jew as soon as possible, because what you're not allowed to do is spend the rest of your life as a crypto Jew.
0: So this was written a few years after he was a teenager. So he must be in his early 20s.
1: Yes, he's in his early 20s. And not only that, you, in other words, you're pointing out, assume that he's young. Yeah. But the Rumbum never writes that anyone asked him for his opinion. He did this on his own. But he's a leader. He's a natural leader. And he felt it was critical to do so to prevent thousands of Jews giving up their lives. And he adds that even though dying a a martyr's death is uh, meritorious, but one would lose one's children to the Muslims because on the basis of a Muslim ruling, that really every child is by nature born a Muslim. And only it's just that the parents train it to be a Jew or a Christian, so they would take the kids away. And he goes on to say they should doven in a mosque, which halachically might not be safe nowadays, but it's definitely halachically permissible. And he says that one of the strongest links between man and Hashem is faith through prayer. And the textual silent prayer can be said in Arabic, which he gives in in, in translation. And Jewish sources tell us that, that Jews worshipped in mosques, reciting the Shema. In fact, there's a Muslim historian I will butcher his name, so we'll just leave it as that, who says that the Jews among us only feign Islam, praying in mosques, their children reading the Quran, following our religion, but God knows what's in their hearts or what they hold behind closed doors at home. Now, it's, of course, very dangerous for the Rumbum to do what he did because he is teaching treachery. He's putting out a, a solid, argued case for deceiving the Muslims. And pretending to be of their faith. Now, obviously, he doesn't sign the letter with his name, but nevertheless, they're going to eventually discover who wrote it. How,
0: if he didn't sign it?
1: How many people were capable of authoring such a a well-argued piece, and it's written in Arabic? Even though it survives to this day in Hebrew translations, one of which is only the, the first part, but it was written in a language which they would most relate to, and the Arabic original may well be lost because Jews had to conceal it from the you know Muslim officials and not make copies and you know convey its message by word of mouth. After a time, he, because he definitely had written this letter. It became very dangerous for the Rumbum to stay in town and they move on. In April 1165, they're out of Morocco for good. And, you know, the Rumbum has parts of his life where he is on the run, but he's still writing.
0: Well, I think it's the first time you've asked a question where we've come to an absolute
1: non-conclusion. What can I do? <laughs> Read more? I've, no, no, no. <laughs> I've run out of books on the topic, basically.
0: So what was he doing during all those years in Fez? Was he writing Torah or law?
1: We will get to the Torah part in a moment. Firstly, he definitely studied medicine. He got clinical training in the Karuyin Mosque, founded in 859. There was a magnificent library. It was became a great center of learning and... And uh, I think it's still there. And there was a university joined to the mosque and it attracted students from Andalusia, from the whole of North Africa. And the Rambam refers to his training in his medical writings. He describes his contacts with physicians, most of them obviously Muslim. And on one occasion, he tried to discover the cause of a notorious medical blunder because physicians in Marrakesh had given the ruler the wrong dose, which basically killed him. So the Rumum tries to find out about this, and the son of one of the attending physicians says, oh, the mistake was they gave him too much, an excess dosage. And the grandson of another doctor who was there says, no, 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 it was too small, the dosage. So he wanted to learn something useful from the case, and the first thing that he learned that was useful is that when the death of a ruler is in question, you need caution so as not to put the blame on anybody, and the second thing that he learnt is that the proper dosage is a secret of the art of medicine. We also have the record of an actual discussion that the Rumbum had with a teacher of his. He witnessed a healthy young man with fever who died, and this learned physician under whom the Rumbum was studying explained the medical error to him, and the Rumbum writes up part of their conversation. Oh, wow.
0: Where's that record?
1: In his book called On Asthma. <laughs>
0: Okay, so he leaves Morocco. I guess that his final stop was Egypt.
1: So indirectly, he goes to Eritrea first, with the intention of living there or a visit. We don't know. But shortly after arrival, he realised he would not be able to live there. So what happens is he crosses the Mediterranean by sea um, and uh, merchants, pilgrims, you know, refugees, pirates, they all crisscross the, the Mediterranean regularly. And some of these ships are huge. They carry hundreds of passengers and the captains tended to keep the ships near the coast because that way you tended to evade the pirates and also keep the ship safer when there are gales or storms. But the voyagers are quite difficult. Travellers had to carry their, their saddles, their bedding, their, their equipment, because when they reach dry land, they are going to ride on animals. And they've got to have food and, and water and clothing and, and sleeping stuff and books and money. And they've got to sleep with it all to, to protect their valuables. And the Rumbom himself writes as follows. On Matzah Shabbos of the 4th of Iyar, which is April 18th, I set sail from Morocco and on Shabbos the 10th of Iyar, April 24th, a great wave almost drowned us, the sea being very stormy. And I took a nadir, a vow that I would fast for those two days every year and observe them as a regular public fast I and all my family and household and I shall command my descendants to do so until the last generation and there are plenty of descendants of the Rambam alive today by the way and then he writes on Sunday the 3rd of Sivan which is May 16th I disembarked safely in Akko near Israel and thereby I was saved from apostasy and so we arrived in the land of Israel
0: do we know of anyone who still fasts
1: I don't know. I've met over the years members of the family when I've given talks on the Rambam, but I don't know anyone personally who is a descendant. And no doubt if we put this out, we will get emails from them and it would be interesting to hear and to, to know. And so he arrived into Acre, which was the capital of the crusader town of all of Syria and Palestine. And it was almost a uh, Christian city. All the city's mosques had been converted into churches except one. And a Muslim writer records, on the morning of Tuesday, the 10th of the month, which was the 18th of September, we came to the city of Acre, of Acre. May God destroy it because it was Christian, he (laughs) he wasn't too happy about that. But the the Jewish traveler, Benjamin of Tadila, visited Akko in about 1170, just after the Rambam had left. He finds 200 Jewish families there, three Rabonim, Tzadok, Yefes, and Yena. And it was Ashkenaz in the main. And interestingly, the Crusades did not prevent Muslims and Christians from engaging in commerce, even socializing. There was trade between those two, which continued. And and merchants traveled from Damascus through Crusader territory, both Muslim and Christians. So they arrived there. And a few months later, I think it's uh, early October, they go to Yerushalayim, where they stayed for three days. And the Rambam wrote in a letter Back to Akko, but once he was in Egypt years later, all four of us walk together in God's house in fear and trepidation. So in other words, while he's in Yerushalayim, this is not a safe place to be. I shall not forget our wandering together in wastelands and forests after Hashem. And if we understand, he can't live there. And by 1165, Yerushalayim had been in crusader hands for about 60 years. And whereas under Muslim rule, Jews were allowed to live in Yerushalayim, Christian occupation meant the end of a Jewish presence there other than to do business. They weren't allowed to live there. And it wasn't until Saladin conquered Yerushalayim in 1187 that Jews were allowed back into the city. Now, after Yerushalayim, this is all written by the Rambam himself, the small group travels to Hebron to, to, to the, the cave of Machpelah. Once again, there are no Muslims or Jews in Hebron because from 1099, the occupying Christian crusaders drove out the inhabitants. They converted the tombs mosque into a church and then the shawl into a monastery so they are there very briefly they go back to Akko until May 1166 when they left for Egypt which we'll do with next week and we're also going to have to find out what the dangers of being in Egypt were because his first years there were I guess you could say eventful and successful but they were also years fraught with danger and, and uh, tainted by loss
0: I don't think I can wait till next week uh-huh. Well, you might have to. You mentioned he was constantly writing. What what was his first main safer?
1: The first was his commentary on the Mishnah, which he began shortly after arriving in Fez and completes in Egypt in eleven sixty eight. It's written in Judeo-Arabic, so Hebrew letters, but the language was Arabic. And there are, as we've mentioned in the past, when we dealt with the Geniza, there are draft copies preserved in the Geniza, showing many crossings out and corrections and additions in his own hand. And the truth is, even as late as 1192, so 30, 25 years later, he is constantly refining his thoughts and correcting his works throughout his life.
0: Another reason to buy this week's Ami. Absolutely. It's, it's, I don't think yes. people fathom what Kisvayat one can we see. of yeah. the
1: Rambam, and how clearly you can see, yes. Now, his Pirush is not only a commentary on the Mishnah, because in his introduction, for instance, he clarifies the nature of the oral law of prophecy, which is critical, because at the time, the Karaites denied its validity. They rejected the Talmud. And then, equally importantly... In the introduction to the 10th chapter of Sanhedrin, called Perich he outlines the fundamental principles of Judaism. He defines the meaning of belief in one God, of terim of reward and punishment of the, the messianic era, of the resurrection of the dead. And these become known as the Yud Gimel Ikorim, the 13 principles of faith. This is where he first records them. Now, fascinatingly, in there, he didn't define wicked and righteous as based on mitzvah practice, but on belief, meaning, kolomar, right? He writes that someone who does not observe or do, but he believes in these 13 principles, mitzvah lo'ehavoy, it's a mitzvah to love the individual. And of course, he writes that the reverse is true if they don't Believe. It's
0: incredible what, what broad shoulders he had. I mean, starting from such a young age about converting to Islam and all the way to the Yud Gimel Ikrim, if you think about it, what a innovative. But the shoulders it took and to potentially, write potentially he
1: he's writing the Yud Gimel Ikrim as a convert to Islam in Fez. I mean, right. he never in any way traded his emunah, his faith, yeah. ever.
0: Yeah, but they last till today, and all Jews around the world accept them as a the basis of faith. It's just it's mind blowing.
1: I did start by saying he yes. is most famous, Drew, and, you know, this is part it's of the reason for it. It's surprising
0: he took to almost our 100th episode to talk about him. <laughs> True. Thank you, Robert Hirsch. We'll see you next week for the, the next part, which we're very looking forward to. Please send your questions, your feedback, your reviews to podcast at jl.org.uk. Make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss another episode, especially not the next episode on this one. Thank you and good night.